So back in 1996, I went to my very first professional baseball game. I went to a Mariners game. Um, we just had an anniversary of sorts, I think, on the destruction of the Kingdom, didn't we? And wasn't that recently? Weren't we looking at that, Cameron? The Kingdom got blown up, like, how many years ago? You remember? Anyway. It was at the Kingdom, that big building that used to be in downtown Seattle. And um, I had never been to a professional sporting event, much less a uh, Mariners game or Seahawks game or anything like that. And my mother-in-law got tickets. This was right after the 95 season when there was like all this hype. They made the playoffs. It was exciting. So this was, um, I think it was, the, it wasn't opening day, but it was the opening home game for the 96 season. Randy Johnson was pitching. King Griffey Jr. was on the field. I mean, so we're walking the kingdom. If any of you had ever been there, if you were in the nosebleeds like we were, you had to walk up the outside um, of this giant cement structure. And there's no looking in, right? You're just, you're just walking up these endless, you know, cement walkways with all these other people until finally you get up to the point where you can enter in. And then we walked out to our seats and it was just unbelievable to me. It just took my breath away. I'd seen it on TV. Of course, there was, now I'm really aging myself. There's no HD back then. So it wasn't quite as clear as it is today. But you walk in and just the size of the place in the, you know, I can't remember what the kingdom seated, but it was at capacity that day for the opening home game. And the number of people and the giant screens and the music and everything, um, it was glorious. And I I can use that word to say that because it was unlike anything I had experienced before. It was amazing. Um, I've been to a lot of games since. It doesn't have that same effect on me anymore, as many things don't, as we get used to them. But today we're talking about, the in our series on the four Gs, we're talking about God's glory. God's glory. And we talk about, we, we don't use that word glory a lot, but we do at times talk about how things have different kinds of glory. The sun has a kind of glory, the mountains have a kind of glory, even a star performer can have some kinds of glory. Um, and God has a glory that is unlike any of these. And we've been talking about these four G's. So far we talked about how God is great, And we said, if we truly believe these things, there's a corollary to those in how we live our life. So if God is great and we really believe that and live out that belief, then we don't have to be in control. We can begin to release some of the things that we're trying to control in our life. That was the first G. The second G we looked at last week was God is good. And we said, if God is good, then we don't have to look elsewhere. We don't have to find something to fill us and satisfy us because we've already received all the goodness we need in God. In fact, if we just look around, we can identify God's goodness in our life and the way he cares for us and loves us and the things that he's given to us. So today we're looking at God as glorious. And if God is glorious, then we do not have to fear others. That's a corollary to that one. To help us get into this today, we're going to be looking at a story from Acts. This is in Acts chapter 4. And where we're jumping into the story in Acts, this is right after a bunch of things happened. But remember when Jesus was arrested, Peter denied Jesus. And the other disciples, of course, just fled. So we're seeing a lot of fear, understandably so, in the disciples. 
And then Jesus comes, re- resurrects from the dead, he comes back to life, he appears to them, and he tells them that they should wait for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit enters them, it transforms them in ways that they're almost unrecognizable as the same people as we begin to get into Acts. So we're going to be looking at one of those stories today. This is after Pentecost. And Peter and John, they had, they had just gone to the temple. And in, on their way in, there was a crippled man. And they spoke in the name of Jesus and healed him. And he went around dancing and leaping and praising God. It's another song I used to sing when I was a kid in Sunday school about this man dancing and leaping and praising God. And he, everyone knows who this guy is. They all know he's been healed. And yet it was done in Jesus' name. And so the, the Peter and John preached to the crowds and thousands believe in Jesus. But the religious leaders who just very recently had Jesus put to death get wind of this. And this is where we enter into the story in Acts 4. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching and the people and proclaiming that in Jesus is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000 The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Let's just pause for a moment right there, because remember, this is very similar to the crowd that Jesus appeared before, before he was arrested, well, after he was arrested, before he was crucified. Verse 7. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, what shall we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, and they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. He was an old man for that time. 40 years old. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the boldness of your early disciples so that we can stand here today as your church. We pray that we would be have our eyes opened by your Holy Spirit as well and strengthened that we may believe in your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So why were they arrested? Well, they were arrested because they were causing a disturbance because people were believing in the name of Jesus. And of course, they're also a little upset at their leaders because their leaders had just crucified the man who now they're believing to be the long-awaited Messiah. And of course, they're preaching about the resurrection of the dead. You may notice one of those groups who came was the Sadducees. Jesus had some running with the Sadducees too. The Sadducees were a group that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead at all. Not just Jesus' resurrection, but any resurrection of the dead later. So they were upset that there was resurrection being preached. And so just like Jesus, they arrest Peter and John and they keep them overnight. And they have a trial, except Jesus' trial happened in the middle of the night. Their trial happens the next day. And when the rulers see it, I love this part. Did you notice this little detail in verse 13? It says, in verse 13, it says, um, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men. They're fishermen. Right, Chris? (laughs) Uneducated and ordinary men. These guys don't have training in the law and theology. And yet they're standing here and they're they're preaching and people are believing. They're talking about the Messiah. And so they recognize them as uneducated and ordinary But they are amazed and they recognize them as companions of Jesus because of their boldness. So I love that because they thought the same thing of Jesus. He's an uneducated, ordinary, maybe some knew he was a carpenter. He's a working class guy. And yet he's so bold and he speaks with authority. And so now they recognize the marks of Jesus in Peter and John. Like I said, they're completely different from the guys we met just a few weeks prior at Jesus' arrest. What has happened? They've received the Holy Spirit. And so they see these men and they think, Jesus. They know that the healing's been done, so that causes a problem because the guy who's been healed is standing right there. And so they can't deny that Peter and John did some kind of healing and At times, people with Jesus wanted to say, well, he did it through the the power of demons to cast out demons or things like that. But this guy wasn't demon-possessed. He was just a cripple. He was at the temple begging for alms every day. And now he's healed. So, of course, that causes a problem. And so they don't know what to do. So they talk about it. And they just say, we're going to order you not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And I imagine it went something like, It's fine if you want to talk about God. It's fine if you want to argue about the Old Testament scriptures. And talk about who the Messiah might be. That was a common theological discussion of the day. Who's going to be the Messiah? When will he come? Where will he come from? All those kinds of things. Those things are fine. You just can't use the name Jesus. 
And of course, for John and for Peter, that's the whole point. The name of Jesus. In fact, we know, as far as tradition tells us, that all of the disciples were eventually killed for their belief in in Jesus and for speaking in his name. And so we have to ask, what happens to Peter and John? How are they transformed? They, they now have a better understanding and an experience of God's glory. They've seen it in the resurrection of Jesus. They've seen it in the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about God's glory, we're talking about something similar to God's greatness, which we talked about earlier. But it's, God's glory is more about God's presence in our life. God's presence. So we can talk again about like the stars having a kind of glory or the sun having a type of glory. I mean, the sun is, I mean, look at it on a day like today. I mean, it's lighting up. We wouldn't even need the lights in this room, right? And it's so far away. It's pretty amazing. You get too close to the sun and you will die. You sit out in the sun too long on this planet and you will die. I mean, the sun has got some power. It's got some glory And God's glory is so far beyond this. God's glory is said to be so great that no human can see it and live. Exodus 33 talks about that. We see God's glory in a cloud over Mount Sinai when the law is given. We see God's glory moving around and settling in the tent of meeting during the Exodus. We see God's glory at the Mount in the cloud of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is there and some of the disciples are there, Peter and John are there. And we could go on and on. There's many other physical examples of God's glory. And yet God's glory is is beyond this. It's bigger. So often when we're talking about God's glory, we have to talk about something called the fear of God. The fear of God. Now when I was younger, growing up in church, when I heard scripture verses talking about the fear of God, it was confusing to me. Because I didn't understand why we would talk about God loving us so much. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know. And, you know, caring for me and taking in all the wonderful pictures and flannel graphs and all those things about Jesus. And then all of a sudden it's like, we should fear God. And that didn't make sense to me. Except for that one song that said, be careful little mouth what you say and eyes what you see. And that one sounded a little scary. But other than that, God seemed pretty nice. So why should I fear God? Well, that's where the confusion is. It's not fear of God as in I'm afraid God is going to strike me down or bring some kind of thing terrible upon me. It's not that kind of fear. The fear of God is just saying, I have God in proper perspective. God is way more important than any other thing or any other person in my life. And so if you ask me to disobey God... I am more afraid of disobeying God, who is my everything, than being disliked. Or in Peter and John's case, being thrown in prison or threatened with death. The fear of God. And often in Scripture, the fear of God is compared uh, against the fear of man. Or the fear of humans, human beings. So Proverbs 29-25 The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
Hebrews 13.6. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Matthew 10.28. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. And 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I read that last one because you see it says there's no fear in love. So when we're t- that's the kind of fear that says, I'm scared of you, I don't want to be around you. That's not the kind of fear we have of God because it's perfect love. But it's, it's fear, it's God being in the right place over and against human beings. Or those that we might be afraid of disappointing or disliking us. God is glorious so I don't have to fear others. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. We talked about these four Gs. We said that one of the ideas we're exploring here is the idea that behind every sin we commit is a lie that we're believing about God. So in this case, the lie that we might be tempted to believe is that God is not present at the moment we're facing, or that God is not important enough in our life, but these other people's opinions are. So we might be believing that people have more weight in our life than God does. So we could talk about peer pressure. We could talk about um, parental approval, which, you know, getting the, the approval of our parents is an interesting thing because that doesn't go away from my understanding, even when our parents are gone. My, my parents are distant from me most of the time, but I still hear their voices, and I still have this desire for them to approve of me. And I have been told by people who have lost their parents that that doesn't change. So the, something like parental approval can even be lopsided if we allow that to be more important than God's approval in our life, or the approval of our boss, or... Whatever it might be. There was a famous experiment done uh, by a psychologist called Milgram. And in this, ex- this um, experiment, he was trying to explore why human beings in the Nazi regime would do the things that they did in the concentration camps. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, Adolf Hitler was a really terrible guy. And he may have had some people around him in his inner circle that were really terrible men. And, but you had, you know, thousands of soldiers who were running these concentration camps, and they were just horrendous. I mean, some of the worst things we have in the history of our world in terms of how human beings are being treated. And so the question was, how did ordinary soldiers end up doing this? And he's exploring this. And so he did these sets of experiments where he, told, he paid people to come in And he hooks someone up to, on the other side of a window, to an electric shock. And they didn't know, but the person wasn't really hooked up to the electric shock. But they had a dial that they would turn up. And they had a mark on that dial where if you got past a certain point, it would cause physical harm 
permanent physical harm to people. And so they started off really low and would tell these people to push the button. And they didn't, they didn't like yell at them or scream at them or anything. They just allowed the pressure of saying, you've been paid to do this and I'm a professional and we're doing an experiment and so you need to push the button. And they would push the button and they'd turn it up and turn it up until they'd get up to what they believed was a 450 volt shock. And although all of the, almost all the participants were really uncomfortable doing this, almost every single one of them at some point would go up to the point of giving that shock. There were a few who said they would return the money and it wouldn't continue. And some, but all of them, they, just, they displayed all kinds of signs of stress. I mean, they'd be biting their lips, they'd be chewing on their fingernails, they'd be sweating and trembling. Some even had mini seizures. They were under so much stress about doing this to another human being. And yet they continued to do it. And the experiment basically revealed that for most of us, we would do some pretty terrible things if we believed someone in authority was telling us to do it. Sometimes we're simply afraid to speak out or confront something wrong. And when we ask ourselves, we can just focus on, again, if we focus on the sin, we can just say, well, I should be stronger and I should stand up. But if we ask ourselves, what's behind that? What is probably behind that is that we haven't, don't have a proper perspective of God's glory in our life. Maybe we're not taking the time to experience God's presence in a way that's intentional through prayer, through scripture, through meditation, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us, whatever it may be. You know, it's gotten to the point that now we have to have good Samaritan laws. You know, Good Samaritan laws, they're based off the story in the Bible about the Good Samaritan. They actually have to put laws down that says, if you see someone being hurt or who needs help, it's now a law in some places that you have to help them, at least by dialing on your phone. And, you know, some of that came from um, things that happened, like there was a famous incident, I believe it was in New York, where there's an apartment building and a woman was being attacked on the street down below. And all these people came out on the balcony and looked, but not a single person called 911 or helped her because everyone just thought, well, maybe someone else will do it. You know, so they have to put these laws on the book. And so we have to admit, there's a lot of sin in our life that comes from fearing other people rather than having God's glory and proper perspective. And it can be just little insidious things like we exaggerate when we're telling a story because we want to make ourselves look better in front of that person. And maybe it goes all the way to telling lies. I mean, a simple sin, but what's going on? We're having a type of fear of this person. We want to be great in their eyes rather than in God's eyes. So we make something up. Or maybe we can't handle criticism. Someone says something that is critical to us and it just bothers us. You know, I was talking to um, someone the other day about this. I think it was a kid on one of my baseball teams because we were talking about how uh, in sports, you know, oftentimes we tend to remember our failures rather than our successes. And I said, I really believe that the best athletes are the ones who can remember their successes rather than focusing on their failures and putting those behind them. I get a chance to coach um, little youth pitchers, you know, 12 and under. And it's tough to be a pitcher and to go up there and throw a ball and get hit over the fence and then go up there and pitch again, much less if you're 10 or 11 years old or 12 years old, right? 
And so I always tell them, I say, you know, as a pitcher, you have to just put that last one behind you and forget about it and think about the next thing. We can be so focused on those negative things that someone say that we can't handle any kind of criticism and we let it just tear us down. Or maybe it's low self-esteem or maybe it's obsessing over our looks or the status we have among our peers, whatever it is, I mean, we could go on and on. There's all sorts of results of having fear of people more important than God's glory in our life. But when God is glorious, when we... And here's one of the techniques I like to do. This may not work for you. But when you're having a conversation with someone who is really critical or angry at you or whatever it may be, imagine God standing next to that person. Now, I know we all have different images of God. Maybe yours is God with a you know, big white beard, whatever it is. I, I often just imagine God as being huge. You know, like this person is sitting here criticizing me. They're standing right next to God's pinky toe. And, and God is looking down, smiling at me. You know, that kind of idea. You know, just picturing how important God is to you over and above the person who you're struggling with. When God is glorious, we can choose to speak up when something needs to be said rather than remaining silent. When God is glorious, we can have the courage to share our faith openly without fear that the person is going to think we're some silly Christian for talking about Jesus. Our missional communities um, have been built around this idea that we can be more intentional about the people around us in our lives and sharing our faith. So when we do things like our beach nights on Camino Island, one of the purposes of doing that so that we can invite people who don't have any relationship with the church. Not, not to trick them or bait and switch. But simply to have some intentional time to be with them. And I have found when I do that, it's surprising how often the Holy Spirit leads a conversation to the point where someone is asking me about my faith. Now I'm a pastor, so that probably happens a little bit more frequently with me than it perhaps would for you. But I do believe the Holy Spirit leads those conversations in those ways. But just having the courage to say, this person is my friend, but this is who I am. God's so important in my life, I'm going to tell them my story and what I believe. And if they think less of me, that's okay. They can think less of me. Because God doesn't think less of me. In fact, this is God's will for me to share this good news about Jesus. This is what Peter and John are doing in our story, isn't it? They're saying, you can tell, you can tell us not to speak in the name of Jesus. You can threaten us with jail. You can threaten us with death. But you're going to have to decide, because we already have, essentially, whether it's right to obey you or to obey God. And of course, he's speaking to those who say, well, of course it's right to obey God. And they're saying, well, we believe God wants us to speak about Jesus. When God is glorious, we can begin to say no, even when there's a lot of pressure. Some of you have had experience of serving on boards for different organizations, and um, this is one of the challenges churches face. Okay, Presbyterian churches face because we have an elder. We're governed by our elders. Is that too often we can end up with boards who just say yes to either the pastor or the moderator or whoever is leading the board. But what boards really need are people who have the courage to say, no, I disagree or, or give me more information. I want to know more about this. And when God is glorious... 
we could be the people who can say, you know, there's a lot of pressure on me right now to go along with this, but morally, I believe I need to say no. And we can stand up with God's strength. Or saying yes to something. Sometimes we're unwilling to say yes. And if we look at the reasons behind it, we're unwilling to say yes because we're afraid we might fail. And then we go, well, but then if we fail, I'm going to be disappointed with myself and other people are going to see my failure. It's going to be known. It's going to be public. They're going to think less of me. I have to be very honest here and say when I was first asked to consider you know, planting a church, I knew that most church plants fail. In other words, you go five, six years down the road, they're not still going. Even really good plans with lots of money and great people, sometimes they just fail. Sometimes they fail in the sight of, of those looking. In other words, like, in, uh, you know, I go to Presbytery meetings. And when we were first talking about Thailand, I had a few of the elders at Presbyterian meetings come up to me and they said, this better work. We really need this to work. Because we had some church plants that didn't work. And, you know, I'm very gracious in the way I respond. But in my mind, I'm thinking, what do we need to work? What do we know about God's plan? Other than he, we feel, felt like he was asking us to start something here. But maybe God was asking us to start something here because he loved and cared so deeply about one person. He was willing to pour tens and thousands of dollars of his church resources and time into reaching that one person. I believe that about God. And then maybe five years down the road, there's no church you can point at. But maybe God's will was done. But others would say, you failed. So I I struggled with that. You know, and I still do in some ways because of the way we judge church success. You know, what are we called to do? So sometimes it's hard to say yes because we're afraid that if we say yes, we might fail. And then what will people think of us? But the question we need to be asking is, what does God want us to do? And what will God think of us if we fail? Will he think less of us if we fail? I don't think so. The things that people can do to us, let's just be honest, the things that people can do to us, even including killing us, putting us to death, if we have God's glory in perspective, those things cannot persuade us from following God. I speak this from a very safe place. We know we have brothers and sisters around the world who are meeting on Sunday morning. And they're living this out. They're saying, just like Peter and John, you can't tell me not to worship the name of Jesus. Speak of the name of Jesus. They're threatened with imprisonment. They're threatened with death. And there are those who are in prison and are not because of the name of Jesus. But when God's glory is in the right place, those things can't persuade us from disobeying God and following Jesus. God is glorious. We don't have to fear others. Let's pray. Lord, I feel like it's important for us to just pause for a moment this morning and to ask for your protection and your guidance over our missionaries and over our brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom we will never meet around this world who are much bolder than we are in the way they're living their faith and who are in danger. So first of all, Lord, we ask for your protection, but we also ask 
for the power and the glory of your Holy Spirit in their lives. God, we pray that we would have just a piece of that understanding so that we might live our lives faithfully and not in fear of others. We know the strength comes from you. It's not something we make happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.